Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. What's funny about that actually is me getting into the USA on this tour, right? I've been on tourist visas the whole time, just on the Esther. And I actually got sent to secondary inspection for the first time. And I was stuck in there for four long hours. Wow. And uh, that, the whole time they had the, uh, the, the food channel on. So I was sitting there suffering, starving, <laughs> watching food, right? And they're just playing all these delicious recipes. <laughs> yeah, and I'd just been on a huge long flight from, I think, uh, Russia or Kazakhstan at the time, right? And uh, by the time the guy interrogated me, I, I got to thank this guy. I'll probably get him in trouble, but <clears throat> I should definitely have been deported because of all the work I've done here, right? Right. But when this guy picked up my passport, he gave me a mini interrogation, and then he comes back and he's like, actually, I do jiu-jitsu. I know you are. Welcome, welcome to America. No way. Wow. That's crazy. So thank God. So Jiu-Jitsu opens all doors. The silver medal gets you some things from time to time. <laughs> Actually, I, cause I'm not American either, but I, you know, I have a working visa nowadays. But previously, I actually had a similar thing. I got to immigration once, and I passed through immigration. Uh, but then the moment after you pick up your case, they were like, sir, can you come with us, please? And I was like, oh, God. And they took me into a room, and it's like five o'clock in the morning, like first flight of the day landing in, in you know in the states, and uh, you know I wasn't kind of super happy. I was a little bit nervous and stuff. And then I realized the guy looking through my case, the big fat pair of cauliflower ears, and he just notices the jujitsu stickers on my case. We get talking. He's like, "What are you here for, bro? Is that just here for a tournament? It's all good." Yeah, no, there you go. So that's awesome right that's awesome they should make all tsa guys train so give us a give us a break on this do you find yourself getting recognized more and more nowadays though because you know the last couple of years have been so big for you right you've been so busy and you're just your, your profile has skyrocketed you know and does that happen you know you're out and about it does it does from time to time really actually the first time it happened uh the first time it happened in a real interesting way was way back uh, when me and Gordon faced off at EBI, the Absolutes, right? Here in Austin. Here in Austin, yeah. So that was that was the, actually the match I won. Just a couple but, months um, after your ADCC like, breakout performance, after the right? Breakout, right, yeah. 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 Okay. So um, <clears throat> I left Austin, and the guys in Austin, they'd given me a bunch of... Uh, a bunch of weed and they put it in my suitcase, right? So I, I'd put it in my suitcase, yeah? Okay, they, they didn't do that without telling you. Like, no, they gave me a bunch of they stuff. They turned you though, into right? a drug mule. They turned me into a drug mule. <laughs> and I flew into New York, right? And I left uh, the airport and I went to pick up a rental car. And while I was waiting for my rental car bus, two guys in full military outfits with M16s came up next to me and were like, excuse me, are you Craig Jones? And I was like, oh, I'm going down. But they just watched EBI the night before. And I no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But I was worried for a brief. Literally, <laughs> you thought you were going to go put in the clink. Yeah, I but... was like, this is it. Eddie set out the message. They're coming after me. <laughs> oh, it's a trap. Oh, my God, that's funny. <laughs> oh, my word. Well, I mean, it's, like I say, it's been a, a roller coaster a couple of years. And I think it all, 
it's fair to say that you know we we did this podcast with you kind of, oh man it was just, I guess a little less than two years ago now and you know we were able to talk about that period from your first ADCC breakout performance in Finland through you know like you said going up against Gordon and and the the wild ride that it was leading into that but then kind of like you've topped it because the last two years have been even crazier still there have been some huge changes in your life and your career you know ADCC that you know hitting the podium for the first time so let's just go back and through that a little bit like people obviously know you're Australian you travel a lot but what's the deal now you you missed the New York now huh yeah so I just actually rented an apartment in uh, Hoboken uh, and I'm going to commit some roots <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I'm for the first time in a long time actually but yeah I'm going to commit to a uh, training full-time in New York until the next ADCC. Wow. And then, then we'll see what my uh, stress levels are like living in New York for 18 months. But yeah, 18 months there is going to feel like a lifetime. But obviously worth it for the great training and stuff. But You'll be there at the basement then with Dan here and the guys? Or? Basement full-time, yeah. And I'll probably do some wrestling. When I was there last time, I did a little bit of wrestling at Edge in Hoboken. Oh, yeah. You guys did a documentary. I've been there, yeah. There. That yeah. place is really, really cool, yeah. Pretty cool place. We just dropped a, a documentary on Flow Wrestling, actually, with the, the founder of that. Um Ernie Monaco was his name, I guess. I, I don't even know. I just did a few sessions there, and I ended up uh, switching where I was staying to Brooklyn. So I was just, I was lazy. It was too far away for me to travel, mm -hmm. basically. You'd be able to hit it up now. But yeah, now I'll be around the corner. So like, I think Edge is one of those few places where like hobbyist wrestlers could go and train. Like, I don't think wrestling is so much like jujitsu, where anyone can just take it up at any point in their life. Yeah, it's I think right. There's a few guys that train there regularly. Like Johnny Grippo doesn't he do some stuff there as well? Uh, Dylan Daniels used to. Bernardo Faria actually used to go there a lot as well when he still lived in New York. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, Edge Edge is one of the few like wrestling clubs that's open for adults to just go and train at. Because, you know, most people here in the States, you, you train wrestling in school, and then, like, you graduate, and that's it. If you don't go to college and wrestle, that's pretty much it. You maybe go back through the through the school club, you know, once in a while to get some rounds in, but people don't start wrestling as an adult in the States, right? Yeah, I think I don't think there's a market for it, because you can't really wrestle your whole life, right? No. Like, that's, that stuff's so brutal that people, as soon as they're finished with the... Uh, school level wrestling they're looking to do something more fun with their life but uh that's why they all retire at like 20 years of age right <laughs> exactly yeah so at least there's going to be a place for white belt wrestlers for someone like me <laughs> do you consider yourself a white belt in wrestling yeah i'm pretty pretty terrible at wrestling hey i'm, I'm i don't know you tell me like I gotta get <laughs> i'm better not saying at... anything <laughs> <laughs> i think i might be hard to take down i don't know from just some jujitsu skills and stuff but for the most part my takedowns are pretty terrible People think they're better than they are because I hit a throw. I hit a judo throw back in the day on Dante, and people really gave me a, a lot more credit than I deserved for that. That was a sick throw, though. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was cool. But, yeah, you know, I guess if people are going to line up your, your attributes, your, your strengths and weaknesses, then wrestling is not going to be at the top of that list of strengths, is it? It's yeah, gonna be, nowhere you know, near. Submissions, guard, and so on and so on. But, you know, sorry, it's a little bit more to you than just that, right? You know, the the technical development you made your name at the first ADCC you know with with actually it weren't even leg locks but people still thought of you were like this leg lock guy because you, then you wrecked the EBI tournament with like all those quick heel hooks and stuff but um, training at Danaher's over the last man how long has it even been since you've been there like a year I, uh, on and off but yeah I've been training there probably on and off for a year and a half I did a six mm. month stint there before 
ADCC, but before that, it was always like two or three weeks at a time. Right, right. But the best part about training, this probably made me a more well-rounded grappler. Well, I was going to say, because I think that we can see, and certainly your opponents probably agree, but the time that's spent there, you definitely seem to have implemented the Danaher systems into your game and you can kind of see it right the sort of the, the savage back attacks you know, obviously the leg locks we know about but there's there's more to you than just leg locks and opportunistic submissions right yeah for sure Pro- I mean probably making a more well-rounded game and probably a more aggressive uh, butt scooting game you know what I mean? Like I used to just aggressive wait. Butt that aggressive butt scooting. Aggressive butt scooting. It'd be strange people that didn't do jujitsu seeing that t-shirt but uh <laughs> But yeah, training there so like most people there. Well, yeah, <laughs> most most sane people. Uh, but yeah, when I train there, we do a lot of uh, aggressive butt scooting in terms of coming up to wrestling exchanges off of the butt. Really, I guess for ADCC because it's it's easy for the your opponent to ride the clock down and sort of keep distance and stuff. But when you're playing an aggressive butt scooting game, they're sort of forced to engage you. It's harder for them to ride the clock down to overtime and to where it takes into wrestling. Wrestling up is actually a it's a big thing that we've noticed a lot in uh, in no gi competitions, not just ADCC, but even in IBJJF. Uh, this wrestling up from the guard or wrestling up from seated guard and stuff it's um it's becoming like a system in its own right because it's not traditional wrestling because you've just taken away all of the hand fighting, all of the, the level changing. There's no shot. There's <laughs> yeah. no penetration. There's no entry. It's coming from from entanglements, usually like reverse alahiva or city guard or whatever, but people are wrestling up and then finishing reversals that way as opposed to hitting like traditional jujitsu sweeps now, right? Yeah, for sure. Actually, someone who did that uh, does that very well in the gym. He hasn't competed much, but Nicky Ryan, like he got a taste of it when he went against uh, Shane Taylor. He did. He, that's how he scored against Jamil, yeah. Scored, yeah, he's very good at coming up with a shot and it's hard to come up with a shot sometimes because the lack of momentum, mm. but I guess if your opponent's overly cautious and overly ripping their hands away, that ruins their posture and you get a, a chance to take a shot that you maybe wouldn't have had standing up. So as they're backing away, you just come up forward. and Exactly. They right. almost pull you up. And when they break the grip, mm-hmm. they end up with a poor posture and you get a clean shot at them. But yeah, Nicky Ryan, that's probably, to me, training with him, probably one of his biggest skill sets. I think when he competes coming forward, you're going to see a lot of uh, butt scooting wrestling. I don't know what the right name for it is. No, I guess. I mean, it's, it's about as great a description as I can think of. <laughs> when you started training there uh, in the basement, what were some like the biggest changes you noticed right away from like the daily regiments those guys do? Because it is highly structured. I was just wondering what, the, what that felt like to you when you first uh, showed up there. So I'd probably been pretty lazy with my drilling. So like uh, when I'm traveling around and stuff, I'd roll. I think for basically all of 2018, I would just teach seminars and roll and get very little training in. Trying you to make you didn't that really money. have a coach either, right? At yeah, that time. Well, at that time, yeah. Well, I had Lachlan, but he was uh, back in Melbourne at that time. Right. But then coming to uh, Danaher's, we all have to drill for basically an hour at the start, whatever sequence he uh, wants us to drill. And we base that off basically him watching class every day. So he really adapts to training for the next day based on what he sees in rolling that day. And then the best thing I've found training there in terms of the rolling is we do three positional rounds and three regular rounds no break in between, and you don't know when the round's going to end. So and the positional rounds will be, for example, somebody starts on your back and you go. It would be like, uh, generally speaking, start in mount, mm-hmm. you'd be uh, start in turtle, mm-hmm. and start in close guard. Sometimes we'll throw in the armbar position, sometimes maybe even a double guard pull where we're attacking feet, but you're forced to engage the position. And because there's no rest round, and because you don't know when the round's going to end, John usually ends it based on who he sees suffering. <laughs> But you can't play the round. So mm. you're forced to actually do jiu-jitsu and you're forced to use technique because if I would roll for eight minutes, have a two-minute break, 
I'm watching the clock and I'm going to use sort of uh, physical energy and strength and stuff based on that time. But if I don't know when the round's going to end and I know it's going to be basically 60 minutes of rolling, then I'm forced to use technique and I found my technique improve and I could roll for the whole hour, which has helped the seminars when I roll with people afterwards. <laughs> my cardio used to be terrible. <laughs> but yeah, that's the biggest change for me, I think, is that I've actually... Um, yeah, been forced to use more technique than just sort of muscling techniques, which is a byproduct, I think, of having rounds and rest times that you can see. It's also taken you away from your A game as well, right? Because, you know, if you have something that you're really good at, let's say, you know, the Zigati heel hook, right? Yep. But then John starts you every day for a week working on bottom mount, then you're going to get a good bottom mount game. So Exactly, yeah. And when you start on the mount of stuff, you actually have to develop uh, proper escapes and proper ways to... Uh, I guess prevent the submission. When I used to compete in the IBGF a lot, I basically would only do open guard drills because I consider a pass or a sweep generally a win. Very rarely do people come back from that. But when we're forced to start in bad positions, and that might be for no time limit, it, it is even beneficial for IBGF because, because I'm comfortable in those bad positions, I'm not as scared to lose position and I can be more confident attacking my opponent. But back when I was on IBJ Jeff again, yeah, I would just be like, I consider a pass a win. I'd be like, let me ride this clock down for a bit. Or even if you got your guard pass, then you might even be like a psychological blow. It's like, damn it, that's it. I lost the match on that one thing. Exactly. I think mm -hmm. a lot of IBJ Jeff heavy guys that don't do a lot of bad position sparring, you see them break from the pass or from the back take. But I think some of the more submission only guys it isn't necessarily the end of the match for them. Potential to come back. Got a question for you. These situational rounds you're describing there. Um, let's say, for example, you start in turtle, like you were saying. If you were to escape from the position, if you were to reverse position, would you then go back to the turtle and restart, or the round just starts in that position and you just go? So you would start. You would start in turtle, mm -hmm. and uh, if you take the guys back, you take side control, you take mount, keep going until submission. Uh, if he rolls, stands back up, gets back to guard, then we'd swap. Ah, we'd alternate every time. Got it. Got it. Oh, that makes sense. So you're both working, I see, you're working top and bottom of whichever position it is that you're doing. But. Exactly, within the round. And it's, nice. I think it's good. A lot of people do like uh, drills where everyone lines up on the wall and you start in positional sparring. King of the hill, right? Yeah, but you only necessarily go against that one same guy mm. maybe once in the whole time if it's a big class. So at least like when you're doing it with the same partner throughout the round, you get to see what they do and make adjustments on the fly, which doesn't work so well when you're doing a big group. Who's your main training partner at Hanzos? Main training plan, any of the DDS guys, really. Like, uh, that, there's a core group of guys within the, uh, within the group, I guess, that everyone sees as famous and stuff. But there are other guys in there, like Jason Rao. I try to train with him as much as possible. That guy beats the shit out of me, but uh, really? I love him anyway. <laughs> and you, uh, you've even said that you consider Jason as one of the, the most technical guys in that room. For sure, yeah, for sure. When Jason comes in, he used to come in a lot more. I'm not sure. I haven't been there in the last six months. But, yeah, he's. I definitely consider him one of, the, one of the toughest guys, one of the hardest guys I've ever trained with. A lot of people will say that and a lot about Jason Rao, and sometimes they see him in competition and his uh, performance doesn't match up the training room. But I definitely think he's on the trajectory that that's eventually going to match up, and I think he'll be one of the best guys in the world. It's interesting because you're considerably bigger than him too, right? Yeah, I don't know what it is. He's not even in great shape. He doesn't even look that jacked, but he still beats me up. Must be the technique. <laughs> Must be, I guess. Who else are you training with on a regular basis then? Obviously, we know Gordon and Nikki are on the mat. Who else? I'm trying to remember. I mean, Ethan Kralenstein and Tarza when they're in town. I love training with uh, 
Taza. Obviously, shout out to him. He just won the uh, was it the Fanatics? The Fanatics, yeah. He wrestled like Ethan, which I was very, <laughs> very happy about. That's kind of crazy, right? Because Ethan and, and, and Taza they got through to the final, and then of course the question is: whenever you see two teammates make it into the final, the first question is: is it going to be a legit match? Because you know there are no closeouts in this, and if you can't close out, it's always the question of are they going to fake it? You know? Yeah, they no. You, you don't think they faked it? Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I shouldn't say this, but we were. We were driving, I can't remember which cities, we were driving somewhere in uh, Arizona at the time, and we had the stream up, and I was driving the car trying to watch, and it did look like, at the start, they were going pretty light, but based on the pain I saw in Ethan's eyes <laughs> of tapping to a wrist lock, I'm going to say it's real. <laughs> yeah. Not like this. <laughs> but Ethan, Ethan did great, too. Obviously, undersized. Who did he beat that day? He beat Jonatus Gracie, which I think yeah. for him was a revenge that's match. A, that's a good one. That's a big name as well. Jonatus beat him at Nogi Worlds, I think, uh, maybe one or two years ago. And who else did uh, Ethan take out that day? Well, he had a tough match against another Henzo guy, actually. Another Henzo guy? Another Henzo guy from Boston, yeah. Oh, got it. Um, I think someone pulled out yeah, of the tournament. Just place. pulling up these results right now. Um, so, yeah, Taza, oh, Taza submitted PJ Barch in his first round. That's big. Yeah, and PJ. then uh, submitted John Combs in the second, both by heel hook. Uh, Ethan beat a guy called Nick Fury in the first match, and then in the semifinal took on Jonathan Gracie, uh, winning both those matches in overtime. That's uh, that's pretty impressive, right? So, when when do you think they get promoted from being junior members of the squad? <laughs> I don't think John promotes Canadians. But, uh. <laughs> what about Australians? I know he likes you guys. He yeah, he actually <laughs> me and my friend Isaac the train there. I think he really likes Australians. I don't know. It reminds him of the part of the world he's from, right? New Zealand, right. but he's yeah. a Kiwi. He's from New Zealand. So. He's a Kiwi. Yeah, that's cool. Um, talking about the training there again, though, you were mentioning about the, the sort of the bodies in the room, uh, but. To kind of the, to learn from John, everybody knows what an amazing mind John Danner is. The guy is, you know, he's changed the game over the last couple of years. And I just remember back to ADCC West Coast Trials um, in, I think it was like February last year. And it was the biggest West Coast Trials ever. I think the biggest trials in North American history. And, uh, and John was sat there and uh, literally six mats running at the same time. I believe every single mat in those early rounds everybody was pulling guard and playing the leg lock system. And that's just the influence that he's had with the DVDs and stuff that he's been putting out. So this guy just sitting, you know, a tangible, tangible impact on the jiu-jitsu community. But how about you personally? As an, as an athlete, as a grappler, as a technician, what kind of impact has he had on you? Yeah, obviously a great impact. I think his biggest skill is recognizing trends. He sees the trend that's coming and he gets his guys ready, sort of ahead of the curve. And then when the guys start implementing that, uh, obviously released the DVD on it, and we switched directions and stuff. But the best thing about uh, training at Henzo's under John, right, is that uh, the DDS guys all do very much the same game. It's one cohesive unit taken on the jiu-jitsu community. And when one of those guys has a fall, that system's adapted. Whereas I would say at most teams, you've got a coach and you've got a group of individuals doing their own thing. So that would be the difference to me, the strongest part of it, is that uh, we have a game plan, and basically everyone's utilizing it. There's slight differences, but for the most part, everyone's using the same systems, whereas most coaches will teach moves, and the students will they'll, they'll pick and choose. They'll be like, oh, I like that. Oh, that's my game. But for the most part, very different. Like a lot of other high-level teams, you couldn't assume one position they're all excellent at. Everybody yeah, you can chance. maybe notice some similarities, but... Ultimately, they're all very different athletes, right? Yeah, very unique athletes. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Has anyone ever joined? I mean, I know you don't join there full time, but I mean, that might not work for everybody. Have you seen someone that might be a highly talented prospect that tries to join the gym, try out the system, and just doesn't work? Have you ever seen? I don't. I don't need names, but have you seen that happen? Something like that. I haven't seen it yet. I probably haven't spent enough time there to really notice. I mean, Henzo's, since I've been there, obviously, it's always been a big gym, but it's basically a revolving door mm. of people coming in and stuff. But yeah, but uh, anyone that comes in that's pretty high successful level ends up moving in to the DDS group and training with those guys pretty much extensively. But yeah, I haven't seen anyone that's tried to adopt a game and really, really struggled with it. Mm. I think like high level leg locks and stuff could be added to anyone's game pretty quickly in a meaningful way. What about the, the the other the other systems though? You know, we mentioned it earlier, sort of the, like the back attack systems. Uh, you caught beautiful guillotine at ADCC. You know, there's lots of stuff that you guys are, are working on. Um, what are the what are the, some of the things that you went there and you were immediately you were like, oh my god, this is perfect. This has been a huge hole in my game. I'm so glad I'm able to put this system in place. Well, I've probably been trying to copy those guys just off YouTube videos and stuff for a long time. So really going in there apart from the newest stuff they've added is basically them brushing up on what i've already attempted to steal over the last few years because like uh when i first started watching the dds guys it was probably eddie cummings gary tonin at ebi and at the time there was no one really to train with in melbourne that was really that interested in leg locks so it was basically me just breaking down youtube videos trying to copy those moves and add it in and then when you get to the gym and you get to see the real thing and things get brushed up on so that's probably yeah. They probably altered what I've already been trying to copy. Interesting, interesting. How about the Japanese then? Is that ever confusing? Because ja- John likes uh, his Japanese terms, right? I don't know any of them. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one time he got me to demonstrate. Uh, he used me as a UK in class. He said something in Japanese, and I did not know what he was talking about. Like, can you tell me this in Tenth Planet terms? Can we speak, can we speak <laughs> Australian? <laughs> did you have that moment of panic when you go like, oh, there like sixty guys all around you, and John's telling you to do something? You're like. I don't know what you're talking about. I was, I was worried, yeah, because sometimes he's mean to those UKs. But luckily, he likes Australians. <laughs> that is cool. Uh, let's talk about the the competition then, because um, let's let's roll it let's roll it back a little bit. Let's talk about ADCC because that was such a, a wild tournament. ADCC 2019, biggest and for us, biggest and best ADCC that you know we can remember years and years. Probably one of the most memorable ADCCs for for many reasons. When you look back, what's your overall feeling about ADCC 2019? Uh, just the pink eye, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Still stings? Still stings a little bit, yeah. You know what? It's like uh, getting silver medal kind of sucks because like, everyone congratulates you for it, but you really didn't do what you set out to do. So it's sort Second of like... Second place is first loser, right? First loser, yeah. If you aim first, you're last. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's, it does sting a bit, but uh, I probably I neglected to do enough wrestling for that, which probably could have been the difference between me and Mateus Denise. But yeah, apart from that, really, the pink eye really stunk up the whole joint. Man, at that you, and, uh, you and Mateus have gone back and forth a bit now, back right? Forth, How many yeah. matches have you had? Like three, I think? We've had three boring-ass <laughs> matches. <laughs> it's it's a it, terrible matchup. It like neutralizes each other. But uh, It is. It's one of those horrible things that where just styles just clash and they just don't mesh and shut each other down. And Yeah, that's why, like, obviously I want to get revenge against Denise, but I will definitely play my hand and give it a bit, a bit of time so that by the time I face off again, my game will have changed completely. Right. And I think if the old style didn't work, I have to adapt. There's no point going up against him multiple times, making you guys suffer through 
watching those matches. Right, another preview, Craig Jones versus Mateus Denise. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've done that a few times. Yeah. Man, uh, the ADCC, though, I mean, you mentioned the pink eye thing. Um, you weren't the only one to, to have pink eye around the time of ADCC. It was like this epidemic, right? Yeah. It's like coronavirus levels of, of panic and, and scare going on at the time. The people weren't handshaking each other. They were like not even fist bumping. They're like elbow tapping yeah, no each other. no one would touch stuff. me. <laughs> it was yeah, a lonely time. <laughs> <laughs> the only time you actually got any physical contact was during the match, right? So, yeah. But you, let's just you know put this straight though, because while some people had it and got rid of it, you actually had it like during the tournament, right? During the tournament, yeah. That I must was, have sucked. I won't name names, but there were some athletes trying to get me kicked out of the tournament for it. Josh Hinger. Josh Hinger, yeah. Yeah, just, no, no, yeah he did, he's made no secret of that. Because he, he had it really bad, right? Yeah, he had yeah. it for like weeks and weeks, running up to ADCC, lost a chunk of his training camp and stuff. And then he gets there and he's like, God damn it, Craig's got this shit. He's passing it around. So, yeah. You know, I will say, had it been any other event, had it been an event that's not every two years, mm. for the sake of other competitors, I would have stepped down. But, like, say, I apologize because Mason Fowler got it. Oh, really? Mason Fowler's like, don't apologize, bro. I would have done the same thing. You know what I mean? So people That's see true. it in different ways. But I will say it is a pretty serious thing because I got it about a week before the event. And I didn't train for about 10 days before ADCC because I didn't want to first catch it and then second give it to someone else. Wow, okay. So I had it at the event and my eye was messed up. And what made it worse is I had to cut about three kilos of weight every day. And the worst thing for it was being in the hot air of oh. the steam and sauna. Oh, my God. So that made it worse again. And uh, uh, another thing, another strange thing that happened was the doc gave me some meds on the Saturday night, some steroids for the, uh, for the eyes. Like inflammation Which, or something? Like, what yeah, was it? to yeah. reduce no, it's inflammation. No, to make your eyes get jacked. To Come get on. jacked. <laughs> Someone did have a good quote. They're like, ADCC, where even your eyes are on steroids. Yeah. <laughs> But I had a, it actually gave me like some sort of stimulant effect. So I barely slept Saturday night, oh, wired no way. all night. And by the time I fell asleep, my alarm went off and I had to get up at like 5 a.m. to cut weight again. Oh my God. But then about, I'll say I had it for a month in a sense of when it was contagious. But my vision only came back two weeks ago, two, three weeks. What? Actually, probably two, three weeks later. No, no, no. It probably came back uh, when I was in Miami for Mo's camp. So actually mid-January. Oh, seriously? So so what, what was your vision like then from ADCC through till then? Like clouded or? Yeah, so it was strange. It cleared up. And then just before I faced Adam Wodinski, I woke up. I couldn't see out of my eye very clearly. And then apparently that's the white blood cells that were trying to cure the, uh, the virus get stuck in the eye. Ooh. And it can take up to 12 months to get your vision back. So my eyes were still light sensitive. I couldn't basically read out of my left. I was just like that. I just had to accept it. Some guys are still suffering. I know Miha is still on eye drops from it. He's still having really? eye problems. Oh, my God. So it can be, uh, can be long-lasting. Wow, I had no idea it was still going on. I know JT Torres had a pretty long um, layoff as well. Really? Yeah. God. Where, where, did you, uh, where do you think you caught it from? I, I would assume Henzo's I right. caught it from. Uh, because, I mean, it's like, it's called epidemic what, carotid conjunctivitis. And, mm -hmm. like, people were saying that... Uh, if you were to touch your eye and touch a surface, it could live for 30 days on that surface. So it's like wow. crazy it's Like a door handle or anything. Like, yeah. So I rested. The, I was seeing people drop like flies. So I rested at the end of camp because I was like, yo, if I haven't got it now, I've got to be very, very careful. I don't get it before ADCC. But it has like a seven-day incubation period. Mm -hmm. So I rested for no reason. I could have mm -hmm. kept training a few more days. And then I couldn't train because of it. I'm Keenan lost it out from ADCC. He couldn't do it. He had the super pink eye as well, right? Yep, yep. Why? Well, yeah, there was some... Doctors and well, the uh, the eye doctors and stuff were given a whole bunch of different recommendations to different people based on how to treat it. Because it's kind of really 
it's, it's uncommon, right? So I think a lot of eye doctors were a little perplexed as to how to treat it properly. But. Yeah. I mean, I tried everything. I Before ADCC, I went to the doctor and got an iodine eye, eye wash. So they fill your eye with iodine, flush it out, try and kill the virus in there and stuff. Yeah, it was, uh, so it was miserable. Right. We had some anesthetic in there, yeah. But it was... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was a bad experience having that. Mm. And uh, so I would be sympathetic to guys trying to keep me out of the tournament, but I mean, it is. So all that said and done, though, you go in there and you just like (laughs) first couple of matches, you wreck shop. Three matches, three submissions. You and Hinger were actually going head to head to see who could get the most submissions in that division, right? But the opening round, second round, semifinal, bang, bang, bang. That's that must have felt pretty good. I was feeling very good because I was, I was really feeling like maybe I could hit four and four, like which obviously very rarely does someone win their division with all submissions. So that was the goal. Obviously, it was very difficult to, uh, to affect Mateus's game. But yeah, I was feeling great. One of the toughest matches, I could give a shout out, shout out to Mason Fowler. He really He's pushed the pace. That was a wild match, yeah. man. That was really fun to watch. He was <laughs> just hard to get a hold of, that guy. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, he was coming down. What did he win the trials at 99? He moved down to 88. I believe he must have some sort of a wrestling base because his he wrestling does. felt very good. Yeah, so Mason actually, uh, he also did a lot of MMA. Oh, really? Yeah, so he did a lot of wrestling and MMA. And um, I could be, excuse me, Mason, if I'm if I'm spreading misinformation here, but I'm pretty sure that he was, uh, that he got some like concussions and like had some head injuries via training MMA oh, wow. and was like made the call like, man, I don't want to sacrifice my brain cells and, and switch to kind of focus on pure grappling. So. so you're telling me next time I should throw some head snaps in there? No. <laughs> yeah, Nicky Rod style. <laughs> I'm Pow. coming for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but his wrestling felt very good. I got mm-hmm. the Hail Mary. I was trying to, I, had, I felt like I almost had him in a submission the entire match mm-hmm. and it was gassing me out. I was trying to choke him, choke him, choke him and got the Hail Mary. I think 20 seconds to go out of bounds. Yeah, but yeah, I definitely gave him the, the wrestling yeah. edge for sure. He felt like he had excellent wrestling. And then uh, you had a, uh, a match against uh, John Blank as well. And uh, John's, uh, I don't know, he was a trials winner, right? Oh, no, actually, no, he got the invite, right? John got the invite. Did he win East Coast trials? He like, lost mm-hmm. to Josh Hinger at the trials. The West Coast And trials. I think he won bronze by beating <clears throat> Jimenez for the Correct. bronze medal match. Yeah, so he actually, he was a, I think he was a, a replacement, like a... An alternate, out, yeah. yeah, but um, but John's super tough, and and he, did you see that he just won a grapple fest last week? I weekend? saw he hooked Widinsky. I didn't watch yeah. that. How early into the match was that? A minute and twenty, a minute and a half. Oh, so it's a quick one. Yeah, it was. Right. Yeah, so and then Adam, you fought Adam too, right? So, I fought Adam as well. Yeah, yeah, so it was cool. I was trying to almost get to everyone in the division. You know what I mean? Yeah, trying to face yeah. against everyone. I I respect Adam for um, he's obviously IBJF heavy guy, but he's trying to. Trying to move into, I guess, the heel hook domain. Obviously, he did pretty be- good at ADCC, though. I mean, you fought each other in, in submission only as well, so submission it's proving that he's like he's switching rule sets and stuff. That's pretty. Yeah, cool. he's like had a consistent effort into this rule set, mm-hmm. and I hopefully, hopefully, he sticks at it because he's a pretty, pretty damn tough guy. Nice. And then um, the final with Mateus. What, st- what would you do differently if you could go back in that match? What would you do differently? It would be difficult to say what I would change in the match as much as I would. Uh, have worked more wrestling in the camp and focused on using wrestling because I believe Denise's strength is going to be wrestling and basically smashing your attacks. Right. The, pro- the, the difficult part with the Denise match and what's frustrating to me is it feels like he's good enough to pass my guard. It feels like he could pass it if he tried, but he doesn't really try. He's quite conservative, right? Yeah, so he's yeah. like, uh, I'm like trying to have an exchange with him and, like, this isn't even me saying anything bad about him. I believe sure. he could pass my guard, but he actually doesn't make the commitment for that next step to happen. 
probably because he knows that you go after the, the risk, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, and it's better to play it safe to win in your area. Obviously, if I would give him the wrestling edge, so if it went to overtime, yeah. But that's what's the frustrating thing about it because one of us could get submitted, but I believe he could pass my guard and submit me, but we don't get close enough to really those exchanges. Right. But yeah, yeah. I would say, yeah, different approach, much more wrestling heavy. I think by the time next ADCC rolls around, I'll be trying to make sure that my wrestling is uh, one of my strongest areas. Do you think um, some people are really committed to a game plan? I think both you, Mateus, stuck to what you thought was going to win the match, which resulted in kind of a, a stalemate there. Is it a strength to be able to be mentally tough enough to not give in to like switching it up, like getting frustrated and saying, oh, I'm just going to do something different. I'm going to come up and try and wrestle them. Or do you think um, maybe it's better to be more flexible? What, uh, what do you think about that? I think it depends on what your goal is. Is If your goal is just purely achievement-based and that's just to win medals, then it is definitely a strength to not abandon the game plan, especially if we're hearing boos from the crowd. If, if you're happy with that reaction to win, then for sure, sticking to the game plan is a good approach. But the way I see it these days is submissions literally equal money. If you go out there and submit, guys, people are going to come to your seminars. They're going to buy your DVDs. They're going to be interested in what you're doing, and you're going to develop real fans. For me these days, it's easy for me to say I haven't won nothing, but I feel like it's more about how you win than what you win. The best example of that would be like a Lachlan Giles, right? The big stars that come out of ADCC are the guys that have those crazy moments, and those moments usually involve a submission. So if your goal is to, to attain sort of somewhat of a stardom in the sport, have people love you and really want to learn what you're doing, then at the end of the day, you've got to attack submission. You've got to go out there to finish your opponents. Guys like Gordon Ryan, Hodger Gracie, Marcelo Garcia, if you want to become a legend of the sport, winning and getting submissions. But if you just are purely focused on achievement-based, getting medals, then for sure stick to the game plan and that'll get you, that'll keep you strong for that position. Yeah, it's almost like that bronze medal. That was the, the goldest bronze medal we've ever seen, right? Cause, that you was, know, yeah. The people's champ, it's true. It's the, it really was. I mean, like, that... That bronze medal at the ADCC Absolute Division, you know, Lachlan just going out there and, and doing it that rather than just squeaking out like a couple of conservative wins or something, it'll be remembered forever. But I, I you know, go back one ADCC, two ADCCs, try to name the Absolute Bronze Medalist. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's like you suddenly, you're, oh shit, yeah, hang on a second, let me just pull up BGG Heroes, right? Uh, but no, it's like so. But yeah, you're right. It's like performances do matter, and it, that's a that's a great question actually. Then it's like. For you, how much does that influence what you do when you compete? Because obviously you want the submission. Yeah, you know, no question. You don't want to just go out and win by laying on a guy. But yeah. is that in your mind when you compete? Are you like, I need to put on a show? I mean, not to the extent of, I think, like Gary Tonin. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, right. uh, But it definitely plays a factor. Like, I want to perform in a way that people want to watch me compete which is I've had some high hits and I've had some low misses. I've probably been in some of the most exciting and boring matches <laughs> of all time. But the goal, if it's possible through my end, is to make it as exciting as possible. That's not to say if I'm up by, up by a significant amount of points, times running out, I'm going to try a flying armbar or something. You know what I mean? We've got to keep it in perspective, but the goal will always be to finish him. And I think, like, Gary Tonin, obviously, he's won some EBIs and stuff, and it was good to see him medal at ADCC this year. But for sure, that guy's probably the most entertaining guy in the sport, mm. most watched, one of the most loved. 2019 Match of the Year winner <clears throat> in the Floor Grappling Awards. Yeah, <laughs> that was amazing, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's, it's how you want to be remembered in the sport. You know what I mean? We all can't be Marcelo Garcia and win everything and submit everyone, but we could at least try 
to move in that direction, I think that would take the sport to another level. Yeah. I think a lot of it is personality as well, right? Because some guys, they just, Gary's a natural showman. So Yeah, but he loves it. He loves yeah. putting on a show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even if his record was terrible, I mean, luckily he's good, so he can back it up. But even if his record was terrible, he would still go out there and do the same kind of thing. But um, Jeff Glover is another great example, a guy who's more interested in putting on a show necessarily than the end result, although, of course, you want to win. But then there are some guys who are just it's winning at all costs, and it doesn't matter. It's, it can be an ugly match, but the medal is what matters the most, right? Exactly, and that's uh, that's a real personal thing. You know what I mean? If that's what matters the most to you, go for it. You know what I mean? But if you really, obviously, legendary status, or if you want to go, like if you want to have a Lachlan Giles moment, that's probably not going to come from a points victory necessarily. Because I mean, Lachlan's basically retired. <laughs> <laughs> well he certainly could he doesn't need to come back right i mean um, we ho- of course we hope he will but you guys you gotta could, persuade him oh i'm sure we could work on that but he could <laughs> he could easily go out on top right now and just live the rest of his career selling dvds and doing seminars and stuff and forever be remembered for that right but, yeah everyone will remember that moment forever it is like um just iconic you know what i mean but yeah i think uh what is it? He's been competing for, I think, 16, 17 years. So it's also displaying like perseverance. You know what I mean? Right. Some guys, I mean, if you haven't had your moment after 12, 13 years, some guys probably won't even keep competing. Right. But like Lucky kept growing and growing and growing. And it also says about the game plan. You know what I mean? What he did isn't a trick, but he brought something to the table that a lot of people hadn't seen. They thought they understood the way heel hook entries happened, changed it up, and it worked for him. For some people who maybe uh, aren't sort of, let's say, the, the real in-depth students of the leg lock game, uh, they might just think that it looks very similar. You know, oh yeah, a couple of inside heel hooks against big dudes, go for the weak spot, you know? But as a leg lock connoisseur, maybe yeah. you can help break it down for us a little bit. So what was it that he was doing differently? So basically, I, I believe he was influenced, and ooh, anyone that creates a new... Thing, it's going to be going to take influence from elsewhere right so i believe his approach is something that like uh, the meow brothers would do to enter 50 50 or like a good tommy langlacker in the gi what are they the matrix guard mm-hmm. right yep, yep. so for the most part you want to have inside position so we'll play butterfly guard and if we can elevate you we can get you into single x ashigurami right and if our opponent's standing we're still trying to keep inside position lachlan giles uh let go of that battle and he allowed his opponent to step inside and they would win inside position, and that would leave him in somewhat of a De La Hiva guard position. So he's given up the first battle there in basically what you would traditionally think is winning the leg lock battle, winning the inside space. And then he came up with an entry that was, again, very similar to what uh, Tommy Langlacker would do to enter his matrix guard, and he would beer and bolo out of there, or what Meow would do to enter 50-50. And he exposed the heel from that K-guard style entry. And a lot of the big guys, it works, obviously worked very well on the big guys because they would try to... Uh, remain on top in that position had they rolled to 50 50 they could have prevented the heel exposure obviously they're still now in 50 50 guard with a guy that's way better at the position but it would have prolonged the battle so i think that's uh that's basically what he did from that position and it was that backside 50 50 position so something uh, ryan hall uses for mma because he's out of range to get hit from there and another thing those guys did that made it easy for them to get put into that position is say like kainan is a guy that passes uh with low posture but straight legs. So what he does is Toriando style, and he's looking if you go to the legs to get a back take. He actually sadly did that to me. <laughs> but his style of passing is perfect for the K-guard entry because his legs are straight, Lockie can invert and attack from an angle where his back can't really be taken. 
So I think that's very interesting. If you watch his match with Lucas Lepree, Lepree was all about pressure passing. And super low. Super low. Super low, bent knees. And that's going to make the inversion to the K-guard more difficult. So those two contrasts and styles of passing is what allowed Lachlan to do it in absolute. And obviously Lepree shut it down for weight. Now you've obviously have got a lot of time spent training with Lachlan, but all the traveling that you've been doing over the last couple of years, were you, um, were you kind of around when he was developing this or, you know, was it something that you got to work on at all? I honestly can't even remember. I don't know if he was doing that same stuff when I was there the previous time, but usually Lucky's a guy that tries to innovate all the time. So mm-hmm. like if I'm there, he's always trying some crazy new thing on me. You know what I mean? So potentially he was trying it on me back then. And I don't remember, but yeah, I know we had looked at using that sort of the K-guard style entry, but like different ways to engage the leg. For me, I was probably a bit narrow-minded thinking that uh, the legs had played out. You know what I mean? Like we had this wave. We had like the sad or the inside Senkaku. It seems like anybody caught up for a bit, right? Exactly. And I thought it had almost played out. And what Gordon had adapted the position to be mainly a sweeping position which he used from IBJJF. I thought maybe the legs had played out in this sense, that there wasn't going to be too much more innovation. But then I guess a lot of people felt the same way. They felt they understood how to hide the heel from the saddle. It was hard to expose the heel. People were catching up. And he just took it in a different direction. So it just goes to show that sometimes when you think the innovation's over, that wave's done, that uh, someone can bring something new to the table. How did you feel watching him? you know go through that absolute division because you you'd already finished for the day by that well, point right yeah yeah i was happy he uh he took care of kainan for me he got some revenge for me against that guy <laughs> but i mean for me watching it right so obviously lives in the corner i was up in the stands for the kainan match i think at that point because i wasn't doing absolute they basically kicked me out of the uh downstairs section and i was watching him against kainan and i was seeing he was getting closer and closer and i almost felt like kainan was taking a breather being a bit too complacent from the position sort of probably hadn't experienced those type of entries before and he got caught and that was crazy and we ran downstairs we wanted to be up close for the next match right and watch what i watched was mike perez patrick gaudio go to war and i thought um gaudio had had a heart attack and died he was laying on the floor <laughs> they were trying to resuscitate him right and from my memory i could see gaudio they told him they're like gaudio five more minutes and he was still laying on the floor and he did not want to jump in for that next match yet. But I swear he looked up and he saw it was a little guy. He was like, oh, get in there. <laughs> and then obviously he didn't see what happened to Kainan. Yeah. Lachlan was able to use the same style entry, that K-guard style entry, and get it off. But me personally, I figured he got Kainan. And that's nothing to say anything against Gaudio or uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. But uh, in my opinion, Muhammad Ali's intimidating because he's big. And Gaudio is very strong. Obviously, Gaudio was having a heart attack. I figured if he had the technical ability to catch Kainan, he should be these next two guys. I mean, Kainan literally just won the gold medal in the over-99 division. Of- just won the gold medal, yeah. So, I mean, that was the, the way I saw it play out was I was like, basically, oh, he's gonna, he's probably going to take care of uh, Gaudio, especially given how tight Gaudio is. And Muhammad Ali sort of fell straight into the same trap. But what was, what was most cool about it was how those guys laughed it off. You know what right. I mean? Those yeah. guys were there laughing. They got done with the same move by this little guy. You saw they, they like sent a photo of the three of them together, yeah, like ice packs on their knees, and they were like, hi, Australia. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Kainan as well saying about how Lachlan Charles owes him some money for DVD sales. That was pretty, <laughs> that was pretty funny. And then obviously we saw Gordon and him uh, 
play out, which uh, very very interesting to watch. What do you uh, think about that match? You know, Gordon was very adamant that it wasn't competitive, that he was totally safe. But I was Matt side, and I do feel like I saw a little bit of not panic, but like, ooh, I better I better get out of this real quick. I don't know. What's your take on that? I mean, it's it's hard for me to have ever seen a time when Gordon Ryan looks flustered in a match. Even when you had his arm. Even when I had the arm, he was chilling, you know? So, like, for me, watching it play out, I was really interested because I don't think, uh, like, I mean, I was certainly wasn't going for those same style entries on Gordon in the gym. Obviously, he had a lot of faith that Gordon, he's, like, he's the best, you know what I mean? So that he would be able to adequately deal with it. But, yeah, it was very interesting. It was one of those moments where everyone was having the same thought, like, could it be? You know what I mean? <laughs> But for me, watching, I thought maybe uh, the size would play definitely play a factor in that. You saw Gordon uh, did have his legs engaged. He did get knocked to his butt. But it was almost like he got. He was like, all right, that's it, and just squashed and got to top position. But, yeah, for a second there, it was like, oh, maybe could be the greatest upset probably of all time. I mean, I've never even seen Gordon get close to you know, a leg lock in any of his matches. Like, you know, he's, he's always so dominant and... I think people were even afraid of going into sort of that battle with him. So it was kind of gutsy for Lachlan to go after the legs. But uh, I'm kind of curious, though. I mean, what's it like in the gym? You know, are, are people going after Gordon's legs, considering his size, considering his technique? For sure. For sure, we go after his legs. I don't think I've ever heel hooked him in the gym. I see Jason Rao go after his legs a lot, too. But, yeah, he's very difficult to heel hook. And I think for him, it all just comes down to confidence. Right. Like, he's so confident not in his, even in his physical like strength and stuff, just in his technique. Mm-hmm. His knowledge is really, really strong. Like if something happens bad in my match, he'll give me a reference match to go and watch to see mm-hmm. something else I could have done. So like, although Gordon doesn't look like it, he's sort of like a bit of a, a super nerd, and that's where he gets his confidence from. Super nerd. Yeah, that's well, it interesting. Comes to, yeah, when it's it comes the first to, time we've ever heard Gordon called that. But When it comes to pure technique and match studies and stuff, that's the way I think of him. Because John is a huge proponent of studying tape, right? And is it true that he actually gives you guys homework sometimes? He'll st- send you off and tell you to watch certain things? No, not me. I think i got to master the Japanese first. <laughs> <laughs> got to get your basic studies out of the way. Yeah. But Gordon has mentioned about how John you know, sits in the little office there at Henzo's and he's always watching videos and watching tape and studying and coming in with new stuff. And, and, and Gordon, for all his personality and his brashness and his, his cockiness and his persona, let's say, um, that he is, let's make no bones about it, he's a very intelligent grappler. He's not purely like just some physical beast. His, his technique is off the charts, right? For sure, for sure. And I think there's something that can be said about the uh, smack talk he does before matches, right? Because it can be hard to get motivated to train, right? And like, I'm not a big fan. I might do some creative, poking fun, like Australian banter style. Banter, exactly. Smack yeah, talk. Yeah. But I'm never really <laughs> saying something that I'm going to regret, right? But Gordon, he says so much stuff about people's game. Like, classic example would be his, just his recent match with Tex, right? Mm-hmm. He said horrible things. He, he said all these things that he puts so much more pressure on himself when he competes. I think it takes him to a mental state that he has to get this done because he's putting more on the line. That's interesting because a lot of people, a lot of people might think it's psychological warfare directed as an opponent, but you're actually saying in effect he's, he's hyping himself up. Yeah, we, we just did that camp in Miami, and uh, Henry Cejudo was there, and he was saying sort of when he changed his uh, personality, you know, he used to be like uh, less vocal, right? Yeah, yeah. He said when he started throwing that uh, smack talk out there, it took him to a mental state that he had to train harder to back it up. 
So I think it's also a tool, a tool someone could do themselves. That is, that makes a lot of sense as well because, let's be honest, there aren't that many people out there who can challenge Gordon nowadays. You know, For there sure. are very few grapplers in the world. So there's a very short list of matches that people would even consider to be competitive, because he is that good. He's that far ahead of the rest of the field. So. Uh, yeah, to get hyped up, to get motivated for matches like that when you're like, I can smoke this guy. This it also sells it, sells it a bit too. You of know course. I mean? Sells yeah, the upset, yeah. right? Floyd Mayweather style. But you don't want to try that. I'm not brave there. enough. I'll be that guy that talks a bunch of smack and someone makes a viral video and me getting put to sleep or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too scared of that happening. <laughs> but you do have your own brand. I mean, oh, yeah. a lot of it's actually you know self-deprecating a little bit, like fuck Craig Jones, of course, you know, uh, your yeah. rash guard and all that. Um how important is it, do you believe, for uh, not just up and coming but established guys to to put some time into that? I feel like you do market yourself not just based on results. Like you do have your own voice, your own personality out there, and a lot of people are really negative about that. They think it's only like Gordon, it's only negative. But I think you've shown that you can have your own your own style out there. Yeah, I think that sort of just grew out of some of the like uh, memes that were created after that. Uh ADCC in 2017 and stuff, yeah. But I think it's very important to differentiate yourself from everyone else. You know what I mean? You got to have, uh, you you got to have an audience. Um, you got you got to have an audience. You know what I mean? If you want to uh, have fans that come to your seminars and stuff, you got to try and build an audience. And luckily, Australians are generally pretty likable, so I can always fall back on that market. You know what I mean? <laughs> but the self-deprecating is probably an Australian thing also. But I feel like uh, I get a bit more liberty to insult others as long as I'm insulting <laughs> myself you know what I mean I'm happy to laugh at myself some of the best jokes that uh, people have put out uh, that I've seen at Jiu Jitsu are usually making fun of me and I really get behind that how many people would wear a t-shirt with them you know F themselves on it right uh, yeah. so. <laughs> well we did it as a joke actually back in back in Absolute we used to have a Wednesday night super fights so we'd be like sort of like what Atos would do I think we stole the idea from them where Two guys would go in and be first point wins. Everyone's watching, try to replicate competition, anxiety. I remember one of the guys got drunk one night and he was like, fuck Craig Jones, I'm, gonna t- I'm scoring a point on him next time. We might even have the video somewhere. And then he started hashtag. I should give him credit, Aaron Peterson. He started hashtagging and then my sponsors were like, let's just fucking put it on the rash guard. <laughs> Turned out to be very popular. The leopard print too. The leopard print was sort of a joke. I was like, the leopard print blew up, right? Yeah. That's, you're almost as well known for that now as you are for the F. Craig Jones shirt. Dylan Dennis <laughs> is trying to steal it, but uh, <laughs> and Perez, and Perez, yeah, yeah, yeah. jacking your swag. <laughs> Even the leopard print's so popular. When we're, I was in Kazakhstan recently, and uh, we're out. We weren't even hunting. We just had guns and we're just doing some fun stuff. But uh, I put a joke about killing snow leopards. And then the ne- so people hated me for that. Obviously, they I'm not- kind of freaked out about that. They they didn't I miss, get. I, I missed this. I, I, I remember. I, 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 I remember to prison. this. Well, yeah. You, they, so snow leopards are protected species, right? They're incredibly yeah. endangered. <laughs> They're like really seen in the wild. They're like these semi mythical creatures. Wait, you were gonna make a new pair of shorts out of one? Was that the joke? Well, that's that was the, the joke. That's yeah. the thing is that uh, <laughs> we made the joke. People were very angry about it, right? And obviously, I'm hunting snow leopards. I don't want to end up in a Kazakh prison, right? <laughs> then the next day, I should give him credit, but I can't remember. He made a. Uh, the leopard print outfit he turned a snow leopard and oh. i put that up and i was like guys we got a new design oh, and then actually people were so excited thinking that that was a real print that now we've got it in production we're going to be making snow leopards so the leopard print for me was just something i was like what can be obnoxious and get some attention coming forward 
But they really got behind it, eh? <laughs> New nickname, maybe Craig the Snow Leopard Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wonder what I could put out and see if people actually enjoyed it. Man, Kazakhstan, though, you mentioned that. Like, uh, that's another one of those wild destinations that you seem to find yourself going to again yeah. and again, right? <laughs> what is it about Kazakhstan? Why, why, why does the Craig Jones keep ending up in Kazakhstan? All right, so uh, 2016, was it? Yeah, 2016 ADCC trials are in Kazakhstan. And we went over there, and there was a guy, a, a guy called Alan that funded. He's trying. He tried to get. I believe he almost got ADCC twenty twenty one. I think he was trying to get it in Kazakhstan. He was trying. Yeah. He was trying. Yeah. So, um, so we went out there. We had a great, great time with those guys. They had uh, just a wild time. They really took care of us, like Kazakh hospitality and stuff. And I've just stayed in touch with them ever since. I remember. So we did the Kazakh trials. I think it might have been September. I came back for their super fight show. In November, and this is the sort of crazy stuff that happens over there. I'm hanging out, and Alan's guy Tulligan's like, "Do you want to come to Alan's birthday party next week?" And I was like, "Sounds great." He's like, he called it Mariki, and I was like, "All right, that's gonna be some some city in Kazakhstan." You know what I mean? They pick me up a couple of days later, take me to the airport, and we get on a private plane and fly to Mauritius in Africa. And Alan <laughs> rented the, out the, tr- the beautiful paradise like Indian Ocean Island, right? Beautiful. <laughs> and Alan had rented out the entire resort for his friends and family. And we were there for three days, just in absolute luxury. And those guys are a lot of fun. The Jiu Jitsu is actually really good out there, really impressive. So, um, yeah, people don't even realize, but there's a really strong Jiu Jitsu and grappling scene in Kazakhstan, right? Yeah, very passionate. So, I remember when we were at the trials, no one was tapping to anything. I remember there was yeah. a guy. <laughs> this poor guy, I don't know whatever happened to him. He got put in two outside heel hooks, one on each leg, and oh let him God. both break. And he didn't tap till he got put in an armbar later. They were, oh. the armbar? <laughs> there were a lot of injuries at that event. Very passionate guys, but they are very good. There's a guy called Osman. Osman faced Lachlan Giles at that same trials. Lachlan heel hooked him. He didn't tap until the point he was physically screaming oh, i think i saw that video, video. yeah, yeah. Remember that. screaming yeah. being carried off that's just before i'm going out for my match it's just not really what you want to see you know what i mean but us man i thought he was career was over it was that bad six wow. months later wins the japanese trials and then he went against lucas lepre first round ended up fireman's carrying him before points period but really good uh really good wrestlers out there what do you think it is about kazakhstan that they took to jujitsu so well I don't know. I think they have a base in uh, wrestling. They love combat sports. Like I think these guys got the UFC going out there soon. That's um, right. Yeah, they just announced mm-hmm. the first event over there. They yeah. really, they, they, yeah. I've, I've talked about this in the past, but like Russia and a lot of the former Soviet states, um, they already have like a real strong sort of grappling scene of their own with judo, with sambo, with wrestling, and then with all those indigenous wrestling styles as well that they've had, and um, and they just love to fight. I think that's the other thing, right? They have a very combative nature in their, in their personality as a, as a, as a culture. They, they told me an interesting story about why combat sports are so cherished in, well, athletes in general, but specifically combat sports, because when the Soviet Union fell in 91, there wasn't police force, there wasn't really a system of government going along. So there were a lot of mobsters that mm-hmm. were born out of taking the big athletes from wrestling and stuff and muscling in and taking... Uh, I guess, assets in the community and stuff. And then ever since then, I guess they've been attracted to combat sports athletes, but definitely those Eastern Bloc countries, very, very well respected. It's true. Uh, they, they, they actually, uh, I read a really, really good book about this because it happened in 
all of the former communist countries that after the, after communism fell, they had what were state-sponsored training facilities. So you could be a boxer, you could be a weightlifter, you could be a judo, you know, whatever, judoka, you could be a, a wrestler, and you would get paid to train full-time, full-time athlete, just go and win Olympic gold every four years. And then when communism fell and that money stopped, they're like, hmm, we need something to do. So they all just became gangsters. Became gangsters, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a crazy story, hey? Yeah. And, well, you know, looking at that part of the world as well, but they really prize things like the traditional sort of masculine values, right? About being strong, about being a protector of the family, about being able to fight and defend themselves and their, themselves and their country. So, Very, yeah, tough guys out there. Another crazy story was I went there recently, right? Because uh, upon coming to the US this time, I thought I only had a, a 90 day entry. So I had to kill some time in Europe before I came over for a quintet and a match with Gilbert Burns. So I was killing time and I was like, I'm just going to go back to Kazakhstan and surprise these guys. So I just showed up and they had a tournament and we were hanging out. And the guy took me this time, Alan took me to his, uh, like his hunting uh, retreat, right? So we drove... House in the country kind of thing. Drove like five hours. We, I think we even at one point crossed the border illegally into Kyrgyzstan. And he owns what's equivalent to like a national park. And I mean, oh, we were yeah. driving for like three hours in just his private hunting resort. And when we got there, it was like... Five star luxury, but that's the, obviously that's when we made the jokes about snow leopards that I got in trouble for. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's uh, let's open it up for uh, some fan questions, shall we? Because we've, um, we've got a couple coming in here. Um, is Mo on there? <laughs> Mo, for him. I haven't seen Mo. He dropped a couple questions, but uh, sorry, a couple comments, but he's been pretty chill. But um, actually, well, how about we just start off with that? The, just the, the fact that Mo's been there, there. So, how was the training camp with Mo put on in Miami? Oh yeah, yeah, amazing, right? So this is the second time I've done one of the um, he, the Modolfo camps. camps, yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, this one, we're in Miami, we're training at Black House. I'm gonna forget some people, but we had uh, me, Ethan, Taza, Gordon, JT Torres, Kainan, the Rotolos, Mike Perez. Nikki as well? And Nikki Ryan, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll get in trouble. <laughs> and uh, he also brought in Henry Cejudo to teach us wrestling every right. night. And uh, yeah. I think Mako came around as well. Yep, point? Steve Mako was yep, there as yep. well. Mike Brown came down for one of the sessions as well. Wow. Uh, but yeah, we would train jiu-jitsu every day. We would uh, have wrestling classes at night. Cejudo would be teaching us wrestling moves. Cejudo wasn't training. I think he just had stem cells to injure a, an old injury, probably a wrestling injury, right? Wow. But in between each session... Mo had us like private chef. We was like f- just absolute luxury, luxury the most I guess jujitsu guys don't don't really get a taste of, right? You've been throwing that phrase around a lot here, Craig. Luxury. Kazakhstan, Mo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh yeah, the most luxury grappler on earth. Getting used to it. Yeah, yeah. But the training was very tough though uh, in Miami. Yeah, very very tough training. Obviously, we're rolling with all those guys. It was good. I actually trained with the Atos crew way back in the day. Like maybe I used to do gi camps there. And oh, that's right. You went to San Diego, right? 2013, 2014. Yeah. So I trained with uh, Perez before. I'd even rolled with JT Torres before. I didn't tell JT, but he actually gave me my first cauliflower ear. No way. He knee rode my ear. <laughs> oh wow. So thank you for that, JT. <laughs> but yeah, um, they do say that his pressure is legendary. Very strong. Yeah. He's like, he's not a big guy. No, know? he's not. And no. he doesn't look jacked. But yeah, the pressure he generates in passing is just unbelievable. Wow. So for me, I mean, I still feel like a bit of a fanboy. So getting to hang out, have this experience, train with all these guys was pretty amazing. Very cool. But yeah, we got a DVD coming out. And you guys will be able to see a lot of the rolling. All the roles. Out. All the roles, yeah. Wow. Any creative editing? Or Hopefully is it just for my uncut? sake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you been tested for coronavirus? Asks Rene Sosa. <laughs> uh, well, this is funny. Hey, so like 
You uh, did get really sick recently. Oh yeah, I yeah. was sick. I wouldn't say I was dying or anything, but I was. Uh, I went to Portland for seminars. We left Portland. We went to Reno or Salt Lake City. I can't even remember. I'm all over the place. But yeah, I ended up catching like a, a pretty nasty cold, like thing for maybe two and a half weeks. And when I was googling, the symptoms were very similar to Corona. Mm. But of, this is like, what did I roll? I rolled with like 30, 40 people every seminar. Tried to roll with everyone afterwards. So obviously, it's a bad time to do that when there's a virus outbreak, but also a bad time to do it when you think you might have the virus. So oh, yeah. I might, might have spread something else like pink eye. <laughs> <laughs> we just Bio got patient hazard. zero yeah. over here, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, you mentioned as well, you've, uh, you've been training at 10th Planet here in Austin this week, and you've got yep. a seminar coming up, but you've been... You've been training with them as much as possible because you've actually said you're not rolling at the seminar this time. Yeah, this Saturday, I have to catch a flight straight back to uh, New York, so to start this stint in New York. So I've been training there every day. I think we're training there this afternoon and tomorrow. So I'm trying to roll with the whole team before I bail out of the seminar and run. So it's not, it's not the virus fears that are putting you off then? It's not the virus fears, no. <laughs> Man, for a guy who spends as much time in airplanes as you, the least of your worries, right? Um, who are some of your favorite grapplers, gi or no gi, past or present, asks Marky Coleman. Oh, see, I, this is a question that gets you in trouble, right? But uh, I'll say when I was coming up, when I was having the biggest fanboy moments, was probably when Bradley Osteema had his run at ADCC. Like 2009, 2011? Yeah, around, 2011, yeah. around that time. So that guy was really someone I loved watching. Obviously, he had some really creative submissions. What a steamer look. He had his reverse triangles and stuff. So for me, like one of my favorite times to watch grappling is still going back and watching Braulio's matches from the ADCC run. It was incredible. And I actually got to train with him last year at Moe's uh, camp in Puerto Rico. Oh, very yeah, cool. So they brought Braulio in. So Braulio is a character. He's entertaining. He's and very he's charismatic. Very charismatic. And he's still got it, you know. I always oh, yeah. say those roles were very, very difficult. Really? Did he you learn some stuff from that yeah, yeah, he was showing some stuff for sure. What's sad is he's enjoying life, and I'm training hard, and it's still <laughs> he's he still like he's like on vacation, like let's get one. He's he's on vacation. He beat me up in denim shorts and no shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Cut off jean shorts. Cut that, off jean shorts, which is a brave dope. statement in itself, but. Uh, <laughs> If you're Braulio, you're good to go with that. You can yeah. get away with it. You kind of got similar body types as well, right? Very tall, long legs. So I, Yeah, I'm like a slightly shorter version. I think he's like 6'4". Do you guys know? I don't know. He's, he's big. big. He's 6'3", yeah. 6'4", six, six, easily, yeah. But, um, you know, long legs. He's got that great reverse triangle system. Did you get a look at that at all? Or? Yeah, yeah. He was showing me some stuff with that. Oh, yeah? Uh, he, yeah, amazing to train with. He's still got the tricks, you know? Did you look at the esteem lock at all? I did. I used to do it a lot, actually. I hit it... Uh, I've hit it in competition only in the gi though I always found when I was training the gi the foot was a bit stickier there because of the friction right because of the friction yeah. yeah but some guys still make it work in no gi I just probably don't have the uh, technique down nice um, let's see what else we got here uh, Craig's opinion on the Berimbolo Berimbolo <gasps> I love uh -oh. the Berimbolo yeah you actually going back I used to when I first started traveling in America to try and pick up some jiu-jitsu techniques I would get eaten alive with the Berimbolo so I remember Way back in 2013, me and my friend, uh, Lachlan Moore, we were drilling the Birambolo on our hotel carpet floor after getting beaten up with it. <laughs> the guy at the time that beat me up was, you guys remember, Rihan Mutalib? Oh, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, Cabrina Alliance Black Belt. Exactly. Yeah, so we, yeah, trained, we trained there, and he just beat the shit out of me with that. So then mm -hmm. we were trying to figure out in the hotel room, and then we took that back to Australia to try and uh, sort of have a technological edge in the jiu-jitsu game. But yeah. At just, that time, the Birambolo was something quite exotic, right? Yeah, it was like cutting edge, right? Mm. Amazing how things have changed now. You see 
freaking white belts doing that in tournaments. Yeah. <laughs> Basics. I, I got a good question here that we should touch on a little bit. What do you think about the Mikey Mustamechi 10K challenge and his match with Herbert Santos? I mean, that's pretty cool. Mikey's got some big balls. I'm happy that he's <laughs> uh, he's actually jumping in the absolute. When was the last time a roosterweight competed in the absolute division? Does that ever happen? Black belt. I don't know. I swear he watched Lucky at ADCC. Was like, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe or hold my pasta for Mikey, right? <laughs> yeah. But I am. I mean, Urba Santos. You never know what Urba's going to get. But obviously, when he's at the top of his game, that's a scary, scary guy. But yeah, I'm pretty. I'm, ex- I'm excited for that. I'll be watching that. I still watch a lot of gi jiu-jitsu, except because uh, I live out of a suitcase. That's a lot of luggage space. Mm. Those gis. But yeah, I miss it. I'll probably go back to training in a one day, just when I have a less serious take on a uh, no gi competition. That's interesting. So, you know, when when was the last time you put on a gi? I competed in the Spider Invitational against DJ Jackson. It was a terrible match. I think I only competed once before that at uh, Black Belt in just a local event. The last real big event I did was the UAE World Pro as a brown belt. Wow, 2016. I, you did a match with Marigali there, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it's funny. Marigali leg dragged me and knee dropped me, but he actually kneed me in the face. And it was like a boxing match. My mouth got, went flying. No and then way. he choked me. But that back then, I think I got third in weight, and they used to do absolute, and I got right. fourth in absolute. Tommy Langlecker was my nemesis in the gi back then. He beat me a few times. Wow. That's another era. That's like going way, way back. A Things long have changed time. so yeah. much, yeah. right? But uh, the Mikey thing, though, going back to it, I mean, like, give us a prediction on how you see Mikey versus Urbis going because, you know, You've got Mikey, who's walking around maybe 140, 145 pounds. Urbeth, a solid 220. Cuts to 220, no less. Yeah. It's an 80-something, or thereabouts, 80-pound weight difference. Is it, is it, it's just a 10-minute points match? 10-minute points, gi match. How do you see it going? Um, I mean, Mikey, I, I think he's too small to be passed. You know what I mean? So as long as he gets off the guard pole, he's gonna, I think he's going to edge that out, probably on points. I think if he did get a good position, there's a good chance he would tap Urbeth. I think Urbus, he has an amazing counter to the guard pull where he like flies into mm. mount. So I, Did it to uh, Felipe Pena that one year, remember? Yeah, when he broke his arm, right? Was uh, that- it was actually, it was the same year. Yeah, it was in January. Um, Urbeth broke Felipe's arm and then, you know, Felipe was out for months and months and then they came yeah. back and they fought again at World Pro in the April. And uh, and yeah, I mean, Felipe won the match, but there was that moment where, where just... Just levitate. Just, yeah, he really does. That Europeans the, match, one of the best matches of all time. Of all times. <laughs> match for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Literally, yeah. So, but, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm super excited. I think Oberth, I mean, potentially, if he did that floating, I don't know, what do you guys even call that? Ricardo Amendolia calls it the guard pull interception. Guard pull mm-hmm. interception. I like it. Yeah. But Oberth is also a scary dude. And when it comes to grappling, He's not a very nice dude either. Yeah, he doesn't with 10k on the line, <laughs> especially with 10k on the line. That's a lot of money, but he, he doesn't ease things on. Let's say when it comes in a match, right? So I do feel like Muhammad was really nice to Mikey. I mean, it was a very technical match, but he didn't hulk out on him. I, Herbert probably will. I mean, yeah, no especially if he gets that knee bar, right? Exactly. So there's a lot on the line, a lot more. I think than 10k. Like Herbert doesn't want to lose to Rooster weight, and Mikey wants to walk. Away with both legs. Yeah, so. you know, you know, uh, you know, Herbert needs the money because I'm not taking any matches against Roosterway. <laughs> <laughs> My ego couldn't handle losing to a Roosterway. Yeah, it'd be tough. How would you handle Herbert? I would just try to leg lock him. Yeah, go for the heel hook. <laughs> Although, what's what's interesting though, if Herbert could adapt his gi game to the no gi, and the current meta for heel hooks has gone back to 50-50 guard, right. very strong position for Herbert. Yeah, he's really good there. He really is. He's I, uh, he's hit the knee bar from there. 
bunch of times in the gi. I remember watching back Copa Podio. He hit it on Leandro low, and then Leandro ate the knee bar, let it pop, and then took his back. That's right. He knee barred Marigalia Copa Podio with the same That's thing. That's right. The same well. event. Yeah. I, uh, I hope Oberth comes back, makes a good run, gets his uh, shit together, because he is of... There are some gi competitors and no gi competitors that aren't very exciting, but Oberth's always one of, the, one of the exciting ones. Yeah. Well, we love watching him compete, right? He's... Uh, you never know what to expect, I think is the yeah. best way to describe it. Hopefully so. he doesn't attack Kyotera in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. We'll, uh, we'll get some bodyguards at yeah. uh, Matt's side. So. Um, going back into the, the technique a little bit, I guess, um, we have a, um, an interesting question here about inside heel hook defense. Noticing that you and Vinny Magalais, you turn in opposite directions to escape. So uh, what's your thoughts on the heel hook defense for that then? All right. I mean, I... I still turn away. I try to hit that Felipe Pena style back take. If if I what did if, they call it, the pretzel bolo or something like that, right? The pretzel bolo, mm. yeah. So what? Philippe turns in such a way that even if his heel gets exposed, he's got control of the hips and they can't put weight on the heel, and he turns it into yeah the pretzel bolo style. Mm. So I mean, I would try that if I can hide my heel in a way that they lift their hips off the ground. Then I would turn back, but I would never turn back uh, unless their hips are off the ground from that saddle position. Whereas Vinny Margalesh, I know. Sometimes he's so good at positioning his body, and I assume so flexible in the joints, that he gives him the heel hook grip and he sort of sits on top of them. And that would be really turning the, turning the wrong way, in my opinion, on a heel hook, but it's hard to disagree when he makes it work so well. Yeah, I mean, the, the results speak for themselves, right? And we've, and we've started seeing other people using it too. I mean, again, going back to Kainan, but you, know, you, you felt it against Kainan at Kasai that one time, but then Kasai came very close to doing it to Gordon at Nogi Pants that oh, one time sure. too, remember? So something to it for sure. Yeah, I mean, that would be what, what uh, Kainan did to me was I went uh, to the outside Ashi position, which is a very vulnerable position. But I sort of rushed through it because it was like right. he'd already scored two. And in Kasai, the matches are so short. Mm. I was like, I got to go for it. And I didn't take him so serious in his leg lock defense that I just threw all technique away and went straight for the legs. But yeah, obviously his back takes are so good. Back takes are definitely the great counter to the leg lock game. I don't think you should give up the leg lock position to engage the back take. But you should pass as normal and use the back take to counter. Nice. What's next for Craig Jones? What you got coming up? We know we have a, uh, another super fight uh, pretty soon, right? I got a match against Kevin Casey. And what's funny is I trained with Kevin Casey back in 2017. And he did beat me up a little bit. He knee-barred me two times. Wow, really? So a lot of people don't give him much credit for this match coming up. Where did you train together? Then? We trained together at um, Dynamics in LA. Got it, got it. So that was, I think we were filming the uh, EBI Countdown show or something. But yeah, but I, he is tough. And uh, it's, it'll be good. Like, obviously, beat me up in training, so it'll be good to get a, a chance to take, take some revenge on him. That's Submission Underground, March 29th. And I think it's actually five-minute match and then EBI overtime. I hope it doesn't five go to overtime. Match. That's a tough ask for Kevin Casey, I feel like. Because I've never won an overtime round, whether it's wrestling, points, EBI style. You take me to overtime, I lose. Really? <laughs> Is that true? Wow, I've never realized. Yeah, because the golden score at third coast and so on. Wow. Everything, okay. yeah. If it goes to the distance, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Just stall it, go. out. stall it out. To stall it out. You've got five minutes to get it done, Craig. <laughs> so. and, then, and then what else? You mentioned about how after the seminar here in Austin this weekend at 10th Planet, that you're going to fly back to New York and then you're going to be based there through to ADCC. But um, in between now and then, do you have any 
any specific goals, any things that you would like to achieve, or is, are you just looking forward to 2021? Uh, the goal is definitely 2021. I'm actually thinking if it's possible, I end up in some wrestling tournaments and stuff. Mm. I really want to fix that part of my game. I haven't booked many super fights because uh, of just the immigration issues and the constant traveling. So, like, I've been sort of inactive at the start of the year, but looking on ahead, back in camp, I look to be competing just as much as I did, say, prior to ADCC and stuff last year. Great. So hopefully we should see you in action a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah. The vacation's over. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Back to work now. Back to work. Awesome. Wow. Craig, man, it's been awesome to have you in the studio. Thank you so much for coming in today. Good luck with the uh, the last seminar you have this weekend. And we'll be uh, keep keeping an eye out for you, hopefully, back, in the, back on the scene. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Awesome. Well, guys. That's it for this week's episode of A Fistful of Colors. We'll be back pretty soon. Don't forget, we've got major events coming up. We've got Fight to Win this weekend. Roberto Jimenez uh, against Lucas Hulk Barboza and a couple of other standout matches. Following week, we've got a great fight to win in Dallas, Texas with Lovato Jr. against Trator. Mateus Gabriel Gianni Grippo. Third Coast Grappling is slated to go down that weekend as well. Gordon Ryan come back for a no-time-limit submission-only match against Patrick Godio. And then... Pans is coming up at the end of March as well. So lots of jujitsu to come over the next couple of weeks. And you can watch it all here on flowgrappling.com. See you again. <laughs> turned into a photo. That's it. Who do you think is going to win? Barbosa or Jimenez? <laughs> <laughs>